book of Luke, chapter 19, in verses 1 to 10. The word of the Lord says this. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was the chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is the son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Let's pray. Lord, you have a message for us this morning. A message to the poor, the needy, the lame, and the sick. Those who see their need of you. And I pray for each one of us in this place that we will see our need of you today and that we will come to you. Lord, do a mighty work by your spirit that only you can do. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So as we come into the book of Luke this morning, we are coming in to the longest and most detailed of all the four Gospels. Whereas the book of Matthew has 18,346 words and about 1,071 verses, the book of Luke has 19,482 words and 1,151 verses. Obviously, I didn't do that work, but I'm glad somebody else did. There are a couple of reasons for this. One is because of the author. Now, if you look all throughout the book of Luke, nowhere does the author identify himself, but we do know from many early church sources that the author is traditionally ascribed to be Luke. He is also traditionally traditionally believed to be a Gentile, though it's very clear from his gospel that he understood Jewish traditions. And when we, learn to learn, when we look to Scripture, we also learn that he is both a companion of Paul and he is a physician. In fact, in Colossians 4.14, Paul writes, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you. Now, when you read the book of Luke, this begins to make sense. Now, I don't know if you guys know doctors. Obviously, we have some in our congregation. Uh, but doctors are very detailed people. Right? And it's good that they are. And so Luke, as a physician, it makes sense that his gospel is very detailed, and it makes sense that it's long. 
Secondly, when we look to the opening verses of this gospel, we also kind of get a sense of why this gospel might be a little bit longer than the other ones. Looking at Luke 1, 1 through 4, Luke writes, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, and that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So Luke the doctor is trying to write and compile an orderly account of the things that have been accomplished among them, meaning the things about Jesus. And this implies that it's probably going to take some detail. It's probably going to be an account of length, right? Which is why, in particular, this gospel is the longest. But then there's a question. Who is this person, Theophilus, to whom Luke is writing? And to be honest, we don't exactly know who he is, but Luke calls him most excellent. And most excellent is important because it is a title generally given it to Roman governors and officials. And so there is a really good chance that Luke is writing his gospel in particular for a Roman official who, according to verse 4, has been taught about Jesus. And now just a side note, I don't want to spoil John's sermon in two weeks, but if we look at Acts 1-1 here, we see this. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. And so because in Acts, the author refers to Theophilus again, and then particularly also to his first book, again, we can deduce from that that the author of Acts is also Luke. So again, Luke is the author of the Gospel of Luke, and then also what we can call the critically acclaimed sequel, the book of Acts. And I don't know if you've spent any time in Acts, but in my mind, as I was thinking about what to compare those two books to, to me, the book of Luke was like Star Wars, A New Hope, and then Acts was kind of like Empire Strikes Back. You kind of get to the end of Acts, and it doesn't feel like it quite finishes. And so it's just kind of a way to, to kind of put them in your mind of kind of what they can be like. However, I'm glad you enjoyed that, Melanie. Um, <coughs> despite Theophilus being the main recipient of these letters, most commentators also agree that there is a larger audience in view. A group of either Gentile believers who have been taught about Jesus or those who are considered to be God-fearers. And if you don't know what that term means, God-fearers were Gentiles who believed in one God. They are monotheistic, if you will. And yet they also had an understanding of the Jewish scriptures and traditions. And this is a reasonable assumption because Gentiles in the book of Luke have more prominence than in any of the other three Gospels. But if Gentile believers and God-fears, if they are the intended audience, then what's this book about? Right? What is the main theme of Luke? And I believe that we can see the main theme in a group of words that occur in Luke more than any other book, in particular, some might say in the New Testament, but particular in the Gospels. Words like save, which is the Greek word sozo, or savior, which is sotir, salvation, which is the Greek word soteria, and the phrase bringing salvation, which is the Greek word soterion. 
The prominence of these words highlights the primary focus of this book, which is salvation. Luke wants his Gentile readers to understand that salvation is for everyone, both Jew and Gentile. So Jesus didn't come in in particular just for one ethnic group. He came ultimately to seek and to save the lost. And as I spent time kind of reading and rereading Luke, I'll be honest, I totally didn't want to use the Zacchaeus story. We know it really well, and I was like, oh, I don't, I don't want to use the story. But as I kept going through, I really kept coming back to this story, feeling like what we get in Zacchaeus is we get a glimpse of the type of people that Jesus came to save. We also get to see what is necessary for salvation, and we get to see the results of salvation. And so I picked this story, and with this story to guide us, I want to look at three important truths that help us to understand this overarching theme that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. And so our first point for this morning is this, that Jesus came to save the needy. Luke 19, 1 through 5, it says, He entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. Again, I know that many of us know the story well, but let me set the stage for you. Jesus is coming through Jericho, and there's this huge crowd gathering. All these people are coming around to see Jesus. And yet Luke, instead of writing about the crowd, instead of marveling at all the people who were there, he points out one man, Zacchaeus. And the main thing that Luke wants us to know about this man is that he was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. But why is that important? Why do we need to know that? Because tax collectors were considered the lowlifes of society. They were Jews who went to work for the Romans, who the Romans are oppressing the Jews, and they collected taxes for them. To make matters worse, many of these tax collectors, including Zacchaeus, defrauded people, and they took more than they were supposed to. Right? So they would collect taxes, and yet they would say, no, 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 you really need, I really need this much. And then whatever extra they took, they would put in their own pocket, which is the reason Zacchaeus was a rich man. And so it's safe to say that most of the Jews hated tax collectors, and they would have hated Zacchaeus. In fact, we see this hatred in the, in the Zacchaeus story in, in, chapter, or in um, verse 7, when it says, And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Or then in Luke 5, 29 and 30, And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Because in the minds of the Jews, tax collectors were no better than the worst of sinners. And so here we have this hated lowlife sinner, Zacchaeus, who comes to see Jesus. And the story goes that he can't get through the crowd because obviously he's short. You know, if you remember the song, he's the wee little man, right? And so instead, he does the only other thing that he can think of. And he runs probably as fast as he can 
ahead to then climb up into a sycamore tree just so he can get a glimpse of Jesus as he passes by. This horrid tax collector did whatever he could to see the Son of God. Because despite his riches, despite his wealth, he knew and understood that he was a man in need. And when Jesus passed by, I love this, instead of ignoring him, instead of scoffing at him as a low life, instead of rebuking him for being a horrible person, Jesus stops and he looks up and he says to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down for I must stay at your house today. And one of the amazing things, that word stay, it is translated elsewhere in scripture as dwell and abide. Dwell and abide. Jesus came to abide and dwell with a needy lowlife like Zacchaeus. And what's so good is that this isn't a one-time event in the life of Jesus, right? This isn't Jesus coming by and being like, oh, I guess. I guess I'm going to stop this one time just for this one outcast. And I guess I'll throw him a bone and I'll come like hang out with him. That's not what's happening here. This is a mark. This is a mark of Jesus' ministry that finds prominence not only in the Gospel of Luke, but is all over the Gospels. Look with me at some of these verses. Luke chapter 2, 29 through 32. This is, this is the prophecy of Simeon. It says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. The beautiful reality here is that God came not just to save Jews, but he also came to save these Gentiles, whom the Jews looked at. The Jews looked at Gentiles and they're like, ugh, Gentiles, they're unclean. I want nothing to do with them. And yet Jesus, the prophecy is like, no, he's coming as a light, a revelation for the Gentiles. He came to save both Jews and Gentiles. But then we go on. Luke 4, 17 through 19. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, being Jesus. And he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolls up that scroll and says, it has been fulfilled in your presence today. Jesus is clearly stating that his mission is about proclaiming the good news, the gospel to the poor, the needy, the outcast, the lame, and the sick. And we go on, Luke 18, verses 35 through 43. And he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was, <clears throat> as he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. And he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, What do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. 
And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. Jesus came to a needy blind man, and he healed him not only physically, but also spiritually. And then in Mark chapter 1, verses 40 through 42, Mark writes, And the leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. Then in Matthew 9, 10 through 13, And Jesus reclined at table in the house. And behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus came to save the needy outcasts of society because they understood they were sick and they understood that they were in need of the help and the healing that he provided. And I want to ask you this morning, Do you see your need of him today? Do you understand that apart from Christ, you were poor, you were sick, you were spiritually dead, you were stuck in your sin, and you were without hope? Do you understand that apart from Christ continually working in your life, that it would be impossible for you to have the new life and the faith that he's given to you? I remember what life was like before Christ. Man, I was trying to find hope in all the wrong things, whether it was drugs, whether it was alcohol, whether it was relationships, whether it was trying to be a great musician. And I wanted, I wanted so badly for people to think that I was great. And yet at the same time, on the inside, I was sick, I was miserable, and I was dead. I was a low-life dirtbag just like Zacchaeus. And yet one night at a campus meeting, I remember it was a Thursday night, probably like the second Thursday in, the Janu- in January of 2000. I heard the gospel for the first time, and Jesus came to me and said, Ryan, I want to dwell in your house today. If you're here today, if you feel like Zacchaeus, the blind man, the leper, the sinners, maybe you feel like I did. If you look within yourself and you see a lowlife who is sick, who is dead and in need of healing, then I want you to know that Jesus is calling to you this morning. He's reaching out to you and he is saying, I want to abide and dwell with you forever. Will you believe in me? Will you let me in? If this is you this morning, if you hear and you feel Jesus calling you today, I would encourage you, come talk to me. I know Pastor Dan is around here as well. He's in the building. Talk to him as well. We would love to help you understand what it means to believe in Jesus and to have the assurance that he is going to dwell with you forever. there's more. 
There's more to the story than Jesus merely coming to the needy. It's definitely true that Jesus healed the sick, that he dined with sinners and tax collectors, that he came to save the poor, the lame, and the outcast. And here's the amazing thing. Jesus doesn't just heal somebody and then say, hey, you're healed. Go do whatever you want. Or he doesn't just say, hey, your faith has made you well. Now go believe whatever you want. He doesn't say this to people because this isn't how salvation works. Instead, when Jesus saves people, he very often says these words. Go and sin no more. Because salvation isn't merely about changing our circumstances, and salvation isn't merely some sort of get-out-of-hell-free card. Rather, a genuine, blood-bought, Christ-exalting salvation includes, first, seeing our need. We need to see ourselves as needy, and we need to turn to Jesus in faith. That absolutely needs to happen. But second, and no less important, is it includes turning away from sin and turning to Christ with a real and genuine repentance. And that's our second point for this morning. That Jesus came to bring people to repentance. Luke 19, 6-10. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone, he has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So Jesus comes to Zacchaeus' house. And I want you to remember something. Even though Zacchaeus was a social outcast, he was still a very rich man. Now, I don't, know, I don't know about you, but if you've ever been in a really nice home, right? somebody invites you into their home, it's super nice, one of the things that, very hap- that happens very often the first time you go in is they kind of want to show it to you. right? They kind of want to give you the tour, so to speak. And I'm here to say, there's nothing wrong with that. I love the tour, right? I do. I, really, I love, like homes, like I find homes super interesting. I really like taking those tours. But here's the thing. Can you imagine, can you imagine Jesus coming into Zacchaeus' house and Zacchaeus being like, Jesus, look at it. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely not. This low-life tax collector has come to understand that he needs Jesus. He has realized that all of the stuff and all of the money, it's not doing it for him. And so instead of showing Jesus his opulence, instead of showing him his great wealth, he shows Jesus the genuineness of his need and belief by his repentance. For Zacchaeus, this included giving half of his wealth to the poor, and if he had defrauded people, giving them four times as much back. And now there's a question there, like why? Why did he have to do that? Or why did he do that? Why did he give half of his wealth to the poor? And why did he give four times as much to those whom he's defrauded? And the answer is because even though he was hated by the Jews, he was still a Jew. He understood the law. 
And not only that, but he also understood the teachings of Jesus. Look with me at the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 15.11, it says, For there will never cease to be poor in the land, therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. And then in Luke 12.32-34, Jesus says, Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart, uh, there will your heart be also. And then next, Exodus 22.1. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. And then in Matthew 5:23 and 24. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and they remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. He was convicted by God that he needed to obey the law. He had great wealth, and so he knew that he was called to use his wealth to give it to the poor and the needy. And yet he was also convicted by the reality that he was supposed to repay the people that he had stolen from. And according to the law, he was supposed to repay them four times as much. Four sheep for a sheep. And then also, that was a way that he could be reconciled to his fellow Jews. Zacchaeus knew that if he was going to come to Jesus and believe in him, that he needed to not only turn away from his sin, again, that's the first part of repentance, but he also needed to walk in obedience to Christ, who was the fulfillment of the Old Testament law. I think this is a very easy point for us to miss today. If you've grown up in the church, it's very easy for you to see salvation as your birthright. Right? I've been a Christian my whole life. Or maybe you came to faith and you, you heard those words, ah, we're saved, right? It's not of what we do. We're saved by grace through faith. And it very often leads to something that Pastor Dan has said. He's used this term multiple times, and I kind of like it. It's very 80s, but it's called greasy grace, right? Greasy grace. We believe that we can call ourselves followers of Jesus without actually following him, or that we can keep on sinning because we're saved by God's grace. But the gospel of salvation given by God through Christ always comes with a call. And that call is to repentance and obedience. As it says in the book of Luke, Luke 5, 32, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And Luke 15, 7, Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or then in John 5, 14, See you who are well, or see you are well, Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Next. Then in Luke 9, 23 through 26. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. 
For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and you have found yourself needy of him, and you have come to him to receive forgiveness of sins and everlasting life, then the call on your life is to repent, to turn away from sin and to turn to Christ in obedience. And one of the reasons that I put this Luke passage in Luke 9, 23 through 26 up here is to show you that very often we can use that word obedience and we can kind of be like, oh, well, if I kind of follow Jesus, I'm good. And yet one of the things that Jesus is speaking against is a half-hearted obedience. Rather, what Jesus has in mind is an all-encompassing obedience. One that requires us to deny our human wants and desires, what what James calls the, the passions of the flesh, and instead calls us to pursue a life that is dedicated, is dedicated to making much of Christ as we work to obey his commands. And now for some of you, one of the things I know is that you don't like that word. Right? I've used it a lot. You don't like the word obedience. It's very hard for us as evangelicals to hear that word sometimes. Because of your background, you feel like it's opposed to the gospel of salvation by grace, through faith, and not of works. And I want to be clear. I'm not saying that we are saved by works. I'm not saying that at all. Nor do I believe that we can earn anything from Christ. But the simple truth of the gospel that we all need to wrestle with is this. That if we have been saved by Christ, then the results will be a life lived in obedience to Christ. I'm going to say that again, that if we have been saved by Christ, then the results will be a life that is lived in obedience to Christ. And one of the verses that I always bring up, and I'm going to bring it up today, it's very convicting to me out of the book, book of John, is John 14:15, where Jesus says, If you love me, right? If we, you, could, you could say, if you believe in me, if you have faith in me, Right? If you've come to me, you see yourself needy, you will keep my commandments. Now, that doesn't mean that we're going to do it perfectly. It doesn't mean that if all of a sudden you leave this place and you sin once, that bam, you're kicked out. It doesn't mean that. But it does mean that a life that has been saved and changed by Christ will be oriented toward living under the authority of and command of Christ. Say that again, that a life that has been saved and changed by Christ will be oriented toward living under the authority and command of Christ. Because a genuine saving faith will produce, it will produce the fruit of good works. That's why Jesus could say to Zacchaeus at the end of the story in Luke 19, 9 and 10, after, again, Zacchaeus has been like, I've given away my stuff, right? I've given it back to those who have defrauded me. And he said, today salvation has come to this house, since he also is the son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and save the lost. And so the question for us this morning is, are Jesus and his commands, are they central within our lives? 
Are Jesus and his commands central within our lives? Or do we have an intellectual belief in him that is, that is devoid of real repentance and obedience? Because we must take seriously Jesus' words of the Pharisees, or John the Baptist, actually, is fruit to the Pharisees when he says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Now, I've said a lot about repentance. I've used the word obedience a lot. Again, I'm, if you're squirming in your seat, I'm sorry. It just is the way it is. But I do want you to know that even though I'm using those words, I want you to understand that repentance and obedience are not lifeless tasks. Right? You're, it's not like a machine worker pressing that press a thousand times a day. And if you're a machine worker and you love that, God bless you. Right? But that is not for me. And that's not what repentance and obedience are. But instead, repentance and obedience are what brings us. They are what brings us into a deep fellowship with Christ that produces joy. That's my last point for this morning. That Jesus came to bring joy. Luke 19.6. I love this single verse in the story of Zacchaeus. So he, being Zacchaeus, hurried and came down and received him joyfully. It's clear from the story of Zacchaeus that at this point, right, Zacchaeus has already responded to Jesus. Before Jesus ever came to his, to his house, he has already responded in faith. Because when, when Jesus gets there, you realize, like, he's already given away half of what he has. And he's already, it seems like, in the process of giving to those people that have defrauded him. He was repenting of his wrongdoings, and he was working to keep the commands of the law and the teachings of Christ. And so when Jesus called him out of that sycamore tree, when Jesus said, I need to dine at your house, Zacchaeus was able to receive him with joy. Because he had a heart that was already ready to commune with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. But then you might ask this question. Pastor Ryan, does our communion with Christ, does that really depend on our repentance and obedience? Is that what you're telling me? And I'm saying yes. It absolutely does. Because following Christ's commands is a confirmation that lets us know that our faith is real. It says, 1 John 2, 3, it says, And by this we know that we have come to know him. If we what? Keep his commandments. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. A genuine faith in Christ leads to genuine repentance and results in genuine obedience. And scripture tells us that that a faith like this comes with a very real and genuine promise. And that promise is that he will abide with us and that he will give us an everlasting joy. John 14, 23, Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And then I love this. And my Father will love him and we will come to him and make our home in him. And then in the final verses of Luke 24, 50 through 53, and he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. 
While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. And so if you've heard these words this morning, if you have heard these words this morning and God is showing you your need of him, I want to encourage you, come to him. Come to him this morning. Put your trust in Christ as the only one who can save you from your spiritual sickness and from death and come to him as the only one who can give you a new and everlasting life. But then repent. Turn away from your wrongdoing and walk in obedience to the commands of God through Christ. Because repentance and obedience, they are not lifeless duties, but are a confirmation of a genuine faith that comes with a genuine promise. The promise of God's presence with us and his ever-present and eternal joy. And the question that we all have to wrestle with this morning is, do we believe that? Do we believe that? And then will we follow him And then, will we receive his promised presence and his eternal joy? Because this is why Christ came, to seek and save those who know they are lost. I'll say that again, to seek and save those who know they're lost. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, it is sometimes unfathomable to be able to search the depths of our need for you. Even when we try to search it, we have to come to the reality that we can't search deep enough because our need for you is an infinite need. The need that that you can fill through your death on the cross. A need that you can fill through um, defeating our sin and yet giving us a new and everlasting life. A need that you can fill by coming to dwell in us by the power of your Holy Spirit as you call us to repentance and obedience. And yet a need that you can fill because you say when we follow you and believe in you, what you have for us is everlasting joy. I pray that we will take that seriously this morning. I pray that if we are walking away from you, even if we consider ourselves to be believers, that we will come to you in repentance. We will come to you to find find the forgiveness that is found only in and through you. And yet we will come back knowing that you want to dwell with us and knowing that you just, you want, you have for us just new mercies and yet joy that is new every day. Lord, thank you. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you've done. Thank you that you have, by your grace, made us yours. In your name we pray. Amen. Let's stand as we continue in worship this morning.